Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey friends, Gordon here. I just wanted to reiterate a message I gave you last episode. In case you missed it, we are no longer releasing our show bi-weekly. We're actually going to retool Darts and Letters and make it a season-based show. I've put more information in a programming note on our website, which I'm also linking here in the show notes. This episode is going to be our very last episode in Darts and Letters' current iteration. We'll be back in early 2024 in a new format. So stay subscribed to this feed because whatever we do next, you will get right here. You can also follow us on Twitter to get regular updates. Our username is at Darts and Letters, all one word. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. A couple of episodes ago, we looked back at the Battle of Seattle and the 90s heyday of the global justice movement. In that episode, we revisited a kind of leftist organizing that you're maybe less likely to hear about today. The people in Seattle were more horizontal and less state-oriented. This was an anarchist kind of politics. If not explicitly anarchist, it was at least anarchist-inflected or anarchist-styled. Direct action, mutual aid, and global solidarity were the watchwords in Seattle. So we got to thinking, why not follow up that episode by looking more closely at the ideas that animate that style of organizing? This episode will be a bit of a variety show. We're going to look at multiple different examples of autonomous, radically democratic social movement organizing. The groups that you'll hear from aren't all explicitly anarchists, but they do all have this in common. They're building something outside the state. We start with theory, and especially Murray Bookchin's libertarian municipalism. Bookchin offered a radical vision of small-scale, grassroots local democracy. The basis of society, the structure of society, therefore, is from the town meeting, groups of town meetings, and higher and higher until you get into regions in which an attempt is made to create a confederal type of society. We'll also examine how Bookchin's ideas have been put into practice in a place formerly known as Rojava. There, the Kurds are leading a radically democratic feminist revolution. Next, Peyton McDonald takes us into the theory and practice of mutual aid. McDonald is co-directing a four-part documentary film series on mutual aid projects across North America. I think it was 1902, uh, Peter Kropotkin was a philosopher, anarchist, wrote a book that's really pivotal in the anarchist scene called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. We can think of mutual aid as being this sort of extension of life in the face of the death cult of capitalism in the state. Finally, we look at why social movement scholars have had trouble understanding this kind of autonomous organizing. And we ask, what tools might they use to better understand it in the future? 
Alex Kostnevich and Max Haven introduce us to the idea of the radical imagination. The radical imagination isn't just about thinking of a different world. It's something that we do and we do together. The radical imagination is, it's like a verb. It's not like a coat you put on. It's a, an activity that, that we engage in collectively. When we do that creative work of envisioning that which does not yet exist. All that and more after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. So if you're finding us here for the first time, consider actually going into our back archive. Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like these conversations, you'll surely like our other episodes. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Let's start our tour of anti-statist organizing with Murray Bookchin. Bookchin was a pioneering social theorist and political philosopher who lived much of his life in Burlington, Vermont. He passed away in 2006. The way that Bookchin authors his own intellectual biography, he starts it around the 1930s when he says he was basically a Stalinist. Later, he moves towards Trotskyism and becomes an active labor organizer within the factories. He says that at that time, Marxism really did motivate his fellow workers to get into the streets. But after the Second World War, Bookchin sees that this radical energy really dissipates. And I had to ask myself, why had this come about? What did this mean? And the conclusion I came to is this, that the workers' movement never really had a revolutionary potential. This is from an interview that I found on YouTube. I can't find the original source, but it's basically Bookchin explaining his falling out with Marxism and his transition towards anarchism. He says that as an actual labor organizer, he didn't see that his fellow workers were particularly revolutionary, partly because of the disciplinary structure of the factory itself. In fact, had created habits of mind in the worker that served to regiment the worker, that served, in fact, to assimilate the worker to the work ethic, to the industrial routine, to hierarchical forms of organization, and that no matter how compellingly Marx had argued that such a movement could have revolutionary consequences, in fact, such a movement could have nothing. Bookchin's thinking is idiosyncratic and diverse. He's certainly a critic of capitalism, but he also breaks sharply with Marx. But maybe the biggest reason he's drawn to anarchism is that Bookchin thinks it has a much more expansive understanding of freedom and exploitation. Because anarchism posed the question not simply of a struggle between classes based upon economic exploitation. Anarchism really was posing a much broader historical question that even goes beyond our industrial civilization. Not just classes, but hierarchy. Hierarchy as it exists in the family. Hierarchy as it exists in the school. Hierarchy as it exists in sexual relationships. Hierarchy as it exists between ethnic groups. Not only class divisions based upon economic exploitation. And it was concerned not only with economic exploitation, it was concerned with domination. Domination with, which may not even have any economic meaning at all. 
the domination of women by men in which women are not economically exploited the domination of ordinary people by bureaucrats in which you may even have a welfare so-called socialist type of state so these are the things that i noted in anarchism and increasingly i came to the conclusion that if we were to avoid or if we are to avoid the mistakes that were made over 100 years of proletarian socialism if we are to really achieve a liberatory movement not simply in terms of economic questions but in terms of every aspect of life we would have to turn to anarchism because it alone posed the problem not merely of class domination but hierarchical domination his thinking here becomes especially preoccupied with hierarchies, especially hierarchical relationships with nature. And really, this is probably what he's best known for. He's known as an early ecological thinker. The ecological issue is not simply a question of preserving wildlife. It's not simply a question, it's not only a question of uh, pure water, clean air, and so forth. It is First and foremost, a question of the simplification of the planet for the purposes of an industrial society of unlimited growth, which threatens the very bases for human life as well as animal life on this planet. We are simplifying the planet, ecologically speaking. We are turning it into a, uh, a resource or a bundle of resources, but always in an ever more unnatural form. In other words, we're turning back the geological clock. Bookchin theorizes something that he calls social ecology. Social ecology sees ecological problems as primarily social ones. And particularly, these are the problems of hierarchy and domination. Bookchin sees hierarchy and domination everywhere, between classes, between genders, and between humans and the natural world. So to solve the environmental crisis, we have to end our obsession with these kinds of hierarchies. And to do that, we have to build a very different kind of world. Bookchin doesn't want us to use the state to build that kind of world. He's an anarchist, ultimately. But actually, over time, he even breaks with anarchism. The question that we are faced with is how to go about doing it. And this involves an enormous departure from anarchism again. I do not believe that we can simply do it by lining up machine guns and bombs and, the, the, you know, armies revolting, mutinying the way they did in February 1917 in Russia. That world is gone. It's gone technologically. It's gone ideologically. Bookchin doesn't think Marxism or anarchism are going to be particularly appealing to a broad majoritarian coalition. But he does still want to keep elements of both. He likes the post-scarcity vision of Marxism and also the notion of taking power and building capacity, even though he doesn't like the centralization, the economistic tendencies, or the theory of historical progress. He likes the radically democratic nature of anarchism, but he really hates the crass lifestyle elements. He doesn't like its penchant for individual insurrection and anti-institutionalism. So Bookchin is trying to do something different. He's trying to imagine a kind of radically democratic, localized institution building. Bookchin develops a revolutionary theory that he calls libertarian municipalism or libertarian communalism. It's local. It takes its inspiration from the New England town meeting, from Athenian democracy, and from other small-scale experiments in small-scale deliberation. That is to say, an attempt on a 
neighborhood basis, on a civic basis, in the sense that I'm talking of quasi or actual urban areas, where people can get together into assemblies on the basis of a number of broad social issues, a point that would have to be raised in the moment. Broad social issues meeting the way, well, in a sense, resembling the way uh, the town meetings of uh, New England ideally existed, and in fact actually existed for a time. I'm not even talking right now of purely hypothetical notions. I'm talking right now of actual things that took form in history, that took shape in history. These aren't just fun little chats. For Bookchin, the point is that you are supposed to be developing an alternative power structure, a power structure that will one day actually take power from the state. In such town meetings, one would try to have paralleling what are the institutions of the state, or at least the basic institutions of the state, real institutions, libertarian institutions of the people, at first seemingly coexisting with the state, but gradually, by the very nature of the problems that would arise, the populist problems that would arise, would gradually enter into a conflict with the state. The basis of society, the structure of society, therefore, is from the town meeting through the uh, local town meetings, groups of town meetings, and higher and higher until you get into regions in which an attempt is made to create a confederal type of society. That confederation replaces the state. Just as the nation stands in opposition to the confederation, so the confederation, one with envision, replaces the state. Now, you might be thinking, quaint set of ideas, pretty cool, might actually work for some L.L. Bean-wearing hippie types talking about their community gardens in some small Vermont township. But this couldn't really work anywhere else, could it? Actually, it has, and in a surprising place. Bookchin's ideas have been implemented by the Kurdish people of Rojava, or what is now known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. This is a multi-ethnic area with over 2 million inhabitants, spanning over 19,000 square miles. This is very, very far from Vermont. The mountains the Kurds have called home for 6,000 years are today controlled by four countries that no one would wish for as neighbors. You're hearing an excerpt from a 1998 news report by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. In that direction, Iran. Over there, Iraq. That way is Syria, and very close to where we are now in that direction is Turkey. And it is Turkey Western in its outlook, a member of the NATO military alliance and a would-be member of the European Union, that today commits the worst excesses of savagery against the Kurdish people. Turkey has never accepted a separate Kurdish identity, instead labeling Kurds as mountain Turks and forbidding them to use their own language, their own songs, their own identity. And its focus is this man, the one everyone calls Apo, Abdullah Ojlan, the peasant boy who started the Kurdish revolution. Ojlan had a similar sort of intellectual journey as Bookchin, though a very different kind of life. He starts out as a Marxist-Leninist guerrilla, but when in prison, he discovers Bookchin's writings. And there, he adapts Bookchin's ideas for his own community. And he renames the ideas democratic confederalism. The ideas are similar to Bookchin's, 
They're libertarian socialist, communalist, anti-capitalist, and ecologically focused. But Ashlan's reading is also especially feminist. He writes that, quote, the 5,000-year-old history of civilization is essentially the history of the enslavement of women. In this news report, Ashlan says, quote, we want women to stand on their own feet. They should discard the traditional notions of dependence of women, of women being empty-headed. At this moment, my biggest project is to help women grow without relying on men. Today, Ashlan is a political prisoner, but his ideas remain influential, not just in the area formerly known as Rojava, but even here, where I am, in Toronto, Ontario. There is an active Kurdish diaspora here, and I wanted to see how this kind of autonomous organizing shakes down within the context of the Canadian state. I went to a park in Toronto last August to visit a large Kurdish festival. I was invited by Elif Gensch, a Kurdish activist and PhD student at the New School. So it's the the 19th annual uh, summer festival that we have, and we call it the Kurdish Peace and Culture Festival. It actually stems from a very essential date for the movement, actually, Mm -hmm. right? But it's translated into this big, like, summer festival. And so with that comes this huge organization. Thousands of people come together. We dance, we celebrate, we wear our clothes. We will now have our first musical performance by Serdar Adiaman. be like oh it seems like such it can be so cultural and it's like that understanding of what culture is changes when it's under such a level of oppression then it becomes revolutionary then it becomes your dances are revolutionary because if we do our dances in turkey you're going to get arrested you know the traditional clothes are have become now part of the revolution there was maybe a thousand people here in the park there's a big stage lots of different bands and a few food vendors nearby In some ways, it looks like your typical cultural festival in Toronto. We have these all summer long. The Polish festival, the Italian festival, the Chinatown festival, and many others. There's always interesting food and interesting music. And it's good fun. It's good fun here, too. The mood is inviting. It's full of families. But the mood is also a little bit more impassioned than your typical cultural festival. There are political posters, fiery speeches, and a real sense of solidarity. When they dance, they dance together. I'm talking hundreds of people forming a circle hand in hand. And many of them are wearing green fatigues. It's joyous, but it's also militant and defiant. All of these things have become like the colors. Like, I mean, to just give you an idea of the oppression, Green, yellow, and red are our colors. There are parts of Turkey that won't even have traffic lights for that reason. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm, you think I'm kidding? Like, that's the level. You know, that's the level of how afraid yeah. they are. Like, green, yellow, and red 
just together mm-hmm. are seen as like this huge threat. <laughs> so it's it's you know so how so in all of those colors and festivities and and expressions we come together and have this big festival and it involves like hours of dancing we have international singers come who are from the movement who or who are part of the movement there's food delicious food so we're so happy to have um you join us to have darts and letters you know give a uh, uh join us for that those festivities and it's yeah it's just a big celebration of kurdish movement in and to be able to do that freely without any form of oppression is is something that people will uh, would die would die for that. Thousands of people have died for this, and so we see that this is the privilege, you know, at least of the diaspora to be able to express our revolutionary aspirations and our in in every form. I invited Elif into the studio to ask her more about the ideas behind her movement and how they play out here in Canada. So the theory is very prominent in the movement, which is known as genealogy. Jeune meaning woman in, in Kurdish, and it's, you know, it's the logic of women and what what it really, I mean, it really is tracing from like a very eco-feminist uh, tradition, social ecology, you know, maybe you've heard about um, the tradition of like Mary Bookchin a little bit with the movement, but this is stemming from the theory of Abdullah Öcalan, who during the 90s wrote these like manifestos essentially that are basically trying to pinpoint, which is, I guess, what a lot of, you know, movements are trying to do, but pinpoint that moment when patriarchy was formed, when patriarchal capitalism was formed, right? So they start there. That's that's what the mm-hmm. movement is trying to basically argue is that the first form of oppression is women, actually. Like the first form of oppression um, that we have is is women, all gender caveats aside and everything like that. And I could see how that could be problematic. But yeah, so, you know, the first oppression of the world is women. And then how that traces into, you know, how it becomes capitalism. And they have this whole like trajectory of history. And then how basically we have to create something that's known as like a democratic state, but in the full sense of what democracy like really is, you know, like a, a radical form of democracy that actually is transformative in, 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 its, in its systems. This is the idea also of a, a democratic confederalism? Yeah, so democratic confederalism, I would say it's the praxis of okay. the theory. In an academic paper, Elif argues that this idea has at its core a feminist and anti-capitalist notion of the commons. This includes collective decision-making over the commons, co-chaired by women and by men. They have the same kind of structure here in Toronto at the Kurdish Community Center. That's the heart of the local Kurdish diaspora. I guess in a very microcosm sense, you are trying to recreate democratic confederalism mm-hmm. in those spaces. And what that entails is a co-chair system. So we have a co-chair system, which I don't believe exists in any other kind of political structure in the world. And we even have a political party that actually mm. practices this called the People's Democratic Party. That's what it looks like in a political party sense. But anyway, um, so in the community sense, yes, so we have a co-chair system. So that means there's one male co-chair and one female co-chair. And the, the, the woman's collective is actually, as of 2020, I would say completely autonomous from the rest of the men's collectives. There's a very, very essential, I'd say, mm-hmm. structure that has to be followed in order for this to work because you're basically right. trying to create a radical democracy, mm-hmm. right? And so when you have a co-chair system, then you have people, you have all of these different commissions, I guess, right? Or committees. Right? Committees, yeah. yeah. Com- like, 
so we have a parliament. We have something called Mejlis. We have like a parliament, which basically means... Here in Toronto? Yeah. At the community yeah. center? Yeah. Yes, wow. yes. And I've been in the parliament now mm-hmm. in various different roles and like co-chair roles even uh, in, in a lot of different senses. And that involves international relations, called arts and culture, diplomacy, like <laughs> recruiting, education of the movement, education mm-hmm. of, of English. The people of this community don't go to the police. They solve everything within the community. But how do you create a new society within the existence of a capitalist state? There's obviously paradoxes there and huge challenges. For one, the Kurdish people arrive here with not very much. So a lot of their time is just spent getting by in low-wage jobs. Many of the Kurdish men work as Uber drivers. People are arriving here and there is a certain level of social welfare that they are given by the Canadian state, but it's certainly not enough to like provide enough for a family. And so usually they start working very often. Traditionally, it was more in the construction area. Now that you mentioned, there's also the sharing economy, which I think has opened up a lot of doors. Or I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's invited a different sector, but it's all very precarious labor, yeah. right? So you, you're in this precarious labor situation, and then somehow you have to find some time, you know, in the evening or something so you can go to the community center and then participate in this kind of like radical democratic system that in itself is a contradiction. And here's another contradiction. The Kurdish community center and its governance is actually dominated by men men who claim to be practicing a revolutionary feminist politics. Very often, unfortunately, the men are leaving women and children at home, you know, because there is a patriarch, like this is, you know, I mean, Kurdish movement is stemming from a very patriarchal society, right? This is, I mean, patriarchy is all over the world, but particularly in like Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Syria and and Kurdistan, you know, there is that, there's a feudal tradition, there's a tribal tradition and... Not all of it needs to be criticized, but certainly this very, you know, we're ta- I mean, we're talking about child brides. We're talking about blood feuds. We're talking about honor killings. I mean, this is these are really some of the realities that they're coming out of. And so the women, especially, I mean, we really try and focus on the women of the community, especially in organizing and then being there and being there for each other and having that space, creating that space. And when the women of the community recently declared themselves autonomous from the rest of the parliament, they got a lot of backlash. Wow. Because it's a power structure. And mm. so people are, I mean, that's kind of crazy. Like you sometimes just feel like you're in a completely different world because, you know, there is this structure that some people understand. A lot of people don't completely understand. A lot of people don't realize this is like a woman's movement. Like this is right. actually a radical feminist movement. Yeah, I was just listening to a, to an interview on a podcast about Rojava and um, and the interviewee, Janet Beal, was, was mentioning this sort of similar uh, parallel structure. And she was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sure these guys here probably resent it. And she's like, I went around asking people and like, no, actually, they, they thought it was great. Uh, women, as she described how women should sort of like be in charge of decisions that affect women, essentially. And that was the the ethos there. But what you're describing here with this 
with this tension. I mean, is that different from from what it's like in in Rojava, or is is it a, is it something to do with being in Canada, or 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 is it actually similar? I mean, what, what are the dynamics? So yeah, Janet Beale's a great friend of ours, and I actually I know her personally. So it's uh, yeah, she's she's been incredible. So I haven't been to Rojava, and I always want to say that sure. because I don't want to speak to something that I don't understand, but. Trust me when I say that we know what's going on on the ground because mm-hmm. it's a transnational movement. And so we're like, you know, we're basically trying to create like parallel structures all over the world. And what I've understood from Europe, what I've understood from getting movement history, you know, like because mm-hmm. I got I got a very thorough movement history, you know, training or background or whatever you'd like to say. This is very prominent. I mean, this is a very prominent dynamic within it, which is that basically that as soon as the women's movement becomes autonomous Mm. and starts to create their own like power structures, there is a backlash from the patriarchy within Mm. within that structure, you know, and I don't think that that's exclusive, of course, to just Kurdish movement. But it is exclusive in the sense that there are two parallel structures, right? We just inherently live in a patriarchal capitalist society. And so in order to kind of counter that in any kind of concrete way, we create these structures. I mean, what that's kind of looking like in a practical sense is that women in the community who are experiencing any kind of violence, which sadly is, you know, a reality, physical or sexual, will come to the movement, will come to the collective. And this is very prominent. So this is very prominent in like the autonomous cities in the Kurdish regions of Turkey before they got cracked down on. So there mm-hmm. were these municipalities and they were they were just known for how the women, how no woman in the community felt like they were uh, under any kind of, like they as soon as they felt any kind of distress from any sort of, right, they would just go straight to the movement. And then the mm-hmm. movement would go and talk to the man and not involve the woman as much in terms of like, the identity or whatever, but identify the problem of the man and then his patriarchal tendency and then how that can be reformed or does it involve an excommunication or like what? I mean, I've even heard crazy things like they cut the man's wages and gave it to the woman. And like there's some really there's some pretty incredible like transformative stuff going on. And I don't see that anywhere else in the world. It really is difficult to author an entirely new world especially when the problems of this world are so acute. Problems like Turkey's ongoing war against the Kurds. Officially, the Kurdish Workers' Party is still designated a terrorist organization by Turkey, the U.S., Canada, and by many other nations, even though they were key allies in the battle against ISIS. Today, Turkey is looking to intensify its crackdown on the Kurds, and it's in a particularly strong geopolitical position to do just that. You may have heard that Sweden is being integrated into NATO, and you might think this has nothing to do with our story, but it actually does. For a long time, Turkey opposed Sweden's joining NATO, but they changed their mind. And they changed their mind for a little tit-for-tat. The Middle East Eye reported that Turkey dropped its opposition to Sweden's membership because the U.S. approved new military jet sales to Turkey and because Canada might also be considering dropping its weapons embargo. Canada once developed drone optics for the Turkish military. These are the kinds of tools that are especially useful in their fight against the Kurds. So the Kurdish diaspora is laser-focused right now on pushing against new weapon sales. 
Ironically, this autonomous movement is pretty absorbed by the pragmatic politics of the state. In fact, there were some politicians at this event I attended, including a local member of the New Democratic Party. The gains are so little sometimes that it can be very disheartening, like, because you're, you're basically like, okay, what's, what's a gain, right? So mm. a gain, you know, I wish it could be us practicing radical democracy in, you know, in every sense of the term. But in fact, it ends up being a lot of lobbying and right. campaigning and trying to, like, play this really horrible geopolitical real politic game. That was Elif Gench. If you want to learn more about the Kurdish diaspora in Toronto and elsewhere, check out her paper, which I linked in the show notes. It's called Commoning the Komal, the Toronto Kurdish Community Centre. That's in the Journal of Ethnic and Cultural Studies. If you want to learn more about the work of Murray Bookchin and his influence on the Kurds, I definitely suggest that you read his daughter, Debbie Bookchin. I based much of my narration on her own writing. For a short and accessible piece, I'd recommend her essay in the New York Review of Books. It's from June 2018, and it's called How My Father's Ideas Helped the Kurds Create a New Democracy. One of the core anarchist ideas is mutual aid. When your neighbor comes to your door and asks you to borrow some sugar and you just hand it to them, you're doing mutual aid. Maybe one day in the future, you're going to ask them to look after your kid, or they're going to ask you to feed their cats. That's all mutual aid. We do it in different ways pretty much every day. It's kind of a natural impulse. But anarchists look to generalize this idea towards a radically different way of organizing our entire society. Peyton McDonald is doing a documentary series about mutual aid projects across North America. It's called The Elements of Mutual Aid, Experiments Toward Liberation. The series is still in production. Darts and Letters producer Mark Apollonio called up Peyton to learn more about the theory and the practice of mutual aid. Mutual aid-based organizing is a lot of things. Within the radical sphere, mutual aid takes on a very political connotation, but mutual aid in and of itself is not inherently revolutionary. So tracing the, like, etymology of the phrase mutual aid back. It goes to the mid-1800s with friendly societies, guilds, trade unions, religious communities, fraternal orders, burial societies, um, all of these sort of organizations that were extra peripheral to the state. And the state was in a completely different formation then than it is today. So social services and things like this didn't exist in the same way. So Communities banded together to bury their own, to raise barns, to do all of this sort of thing, to care for each other in sickness. African, Asian, South American, North American, indigenous people, we've been doing this for thousands of years, this sort of communalism, right? This intimate direct democracy, as Modibo Kadali calls it. It predates the term mutual aid. And this also predates the 1900s, the dawn of, I think it was 1902, uh, Peter Kropotkin was a philosopher, anarchist, wrote a book that's really pivotal in the anarchist scene called Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. And this book, I believe, really politicized mutual aid and its practice in a way that it hadn't 
seen before. And so mutual aid now takes on an anarchist sort of connotation, an anarchist leaning, meaning it's antithetical to the state and antithetical to the police and capitalism. So thinking about mutual aid taken to its logical conclusion from an anarchist analysis, right, we can see people helping people, uh, communities building intimate direct democracy, communities pooling resources as leading towards a stateless, moneyless society. We can think of mutual aid as being this sort of extension of life in the uh, face of the death cult of capitalism in the state. So in this film, you feature 15 groups that exemplify all of these principles that you've just been talking about. Maybe tell me a bit about a couple of them, why you, why you picked the kinds of groups you did. One group in particular that really comes to mind is the Contravienta Marea, or the Comodor, which is in Tijuana, Mexico. And this is an anarchist migrant volunteer-run kitchen that operates seven days a week and has been around for quite some time. In 2018, when the large caravans were coming up from South America, there was a number of people that ended up along the way supporting each other. And as they were supporting each other, they were cooking large meals to collectivize what little resources they had as they were fleeing their countries because of climate catastrophe and capitalism and, re and repression and heading north. Um, and along the way, they were creating this like in, you know, formal infrastructure of support. And when they got to Tijuana, um, they met the American imperialist border and were stopped. And so ended up creating long-term infrastructure in Tijuana that's taken multiple iterations, has been antithetical to the police and their repression tactics. At one point, they were able to seize a large warehouse and use it as a, a space during the pandemic in the early days of the pandemic. And that space was eventually laid under siege by the police and taken from them. And in the wreckage of all of that, new constellations of mutual aid were blossoming out. And one of them is this kitchen that still exists today. And their operation is incredibly horizontal and not just one-sided. These are migrants themselves that are participating and making decisions in the effort. Um, it's a rotating sort of door of people who are coming in and out as people are getting into new life situations through their migration and displacement. And I think that it's one of the most exciting examples that I've seen of people making a lot with a little. One of the beautiful experimentations that they're working through right now is creating a little school, an escuelita, where they're teaching people through using popular education, right? So people from the community are able to come in and offer their life skills and experience, and people are able to teach each other, you know, each one teach one kind of a system. So it's not just food distribution. Uh, it's a lot more than that. The autonomous and anarchist sort of philosophies that undergird these things, I, th I think they're quite foreign to many people who were raised in, in, a, in a modern capitalist nation state. Like, to what degree, to your knowledge, are the people who participate in these, in these groups that are anarchist, more mutual aid societies that have autonomous um, underpinnings, to what degree do, are they familiar with and, and buy into and, and care about the philosophies that, that undergird these things that are, that are helping them in pragmatic ways? Few of them identify as explicitly anarchist. Some of them do. But in all of these situations, people are emphasizing in their collectives autonomy and specifically collective autonomy, right? I think in like really simple terms, mutual aid really makes a lot of sense to people. And it doesn't have to have a black flag over it in order for it to make sense, I think, for the most part for, for most people. In fact, I think that becomes very alienating in most cases, especially in, you know, black and brown communities where like that's kind of seen as like a white thing, right? 
this is me speaking as a black <laughs> anarchist. Um, I like toe this line of like how to talk to people um, with my political beliefs. Um, I usually start telling people, you know, what I'm thinking and I listen to what people are saying. And that's usually once we start to find some common ground where I start to capstone with, yeah, and that's, that's why I'm an anarchist. Um, and I think that usually makes sense to people, not in an attempt to try to convert them, but, mm -hmm. but in, a in a sense of like trying to say like, yo, that's, that's why I built this political ideology around all of this, because like we need to get organized, you understand? And like, I think the mm -hmm. beauty of anarchism is about experimentation with a diversity of tactics that pull us away from the state and capitalist sorts of thinking. I, I don't think that everybody needs to identify as an anarchist at the end of the day. People understand and can see the complexity and the contradictions of capitalism and the nation state. Maybe not with that language all of the time, but I know that people who are in the hood, people who are in ghettos, people who are in barrios, people understand at like a really intrinsic level that something isn't right. And the option that we've been given all our lives is to continue to hustle in the capitalist system with the you know, hope of being able to make it out. And I think that people intrinsically know that the world that's been promised to us all our lives is, is not coming and we have to build something different. But our collective imaginations have been so hampered. I think that people oftentimes don't see uh, what other options there are, even though they're hungry for them. But if you're not orienting people like quite early on to an autonomous or anarchist ideology or, or philosophy, then I would imagine that they might get, you know, if, if their if their leanings, their 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 hunger is 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 pulling them towards something that's radical or, or alternative, I would imagine they could quite easily be drawn in by uh, many of the like very prominent um, left-wing state-based uh, uh, efforts that are going on, um, whatever they may be, the Green New Deal or, you know, the inspiring politicians who are make up the squad in Congress or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. And so how do you then position yourself uh, and, and talk to these people in a way that they understand that there is a difference between the two? How do you explain that difference? How do you explain that it matters? Um, what kind of convincing do you need to do? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Yeah, I think that a lot of the complexity of the situation that we're dealing with really requires us to think about power in, I think, really complex ways that oftentimes even people like myself who are like anarchists, right, uh, take for granted. Um, because we've lived in a world of authoritarianism, everything is authoritarian around us. And I know that sounds a little conspiratorial, but if you examine it for just a moment and think about the way that school, healthcare, agriculture, education, and obviously the government, commerce, all of these things are functioning, um, do, we do we truly live in a democratic society? You know, I think like this is usually where I start to begin with people when we're sort of like moving through these uh, thought experiments you know, do you have democracy in the workplace? No. Do you have democracy in your education system? Absolutely not. Um, some people do. Some people are working in worker-owned cooperatives or uh, worker self-directed nonprofit organizations where they have some leverage um, or some stake. Um, but those examples are far and few between. And once again, with education, some people do have, you know, more participatory, uh, popular education-based uh, education that they're receiving. Um, but once again, these, these examples are the minority. And so in the majority of society, people don't have living examples of democratic participation. We have authoritarianism. We have the landlord. We have the police. We have the city council. You know, these like 
entities that exist um, that are imposing from above rather than working and building from below. Um, and so I think the like general orientation, even in pop media with Star Wars and um, Maze Runner and Hunger Games, you know, all of these like revolutionary examples that we have in pop media are always contingent on either <laughs> one white person uh, who's a charismatic leader or some revolutionary vanguard organization that's going to save the whole planet. Um, and I think that like this kind of thinking really arrests us. This authoritarian, charismatic leadership-based thinking really arrests us um, and, 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 and inhibits us from being able to think as a collective. Um, and so I think breaking through that first is really necessary, providing examples of how uh, we can think beyond uh, authoritarian forms of leadership because we, we know no other options. Um, and so I think that being able to provide new media and new living examples of communities that operate differently is I think incredibly important uh, in breaking down this sort of like reliance on state formations, uh, call your senator, or you know, I guess I'm going to support China, Cuba, and uh, Iran because they're all supposedly anti-imperialist and hate the United States. And I guess uh, because I hate the US so much, I'll just go to their side instead even though they're also despotic state governments that are also exploiting their people, imposing capitalistic policies that are uh, exploiting workers. And I will also capstone this with a very real and immediate fear that people do have because we have these conversations a lot within these circles, right? Well, how do we make sure that people are fed, that they have power, and that medical infrastructure is running and uh, personnel are there to be able to take care of people in times of crisis. How do we keep society running, right? Um, and I think that's a very real question that we need to continue to examine. Do we, you know, just succumb to the power of the state then and just hope that we can like make a new, nicer state that's able to continue to take this infrastructure that exists currently and, and continue to move it forward into the future? Um, or do we reimagine something else? The groups that you're featuring uh, in your, in your four-part movie, um, and maybe any others you've come across, like how does one gauge the health of these things? You know, like you're talking about the these kitchens that were kind of emerging from the movement of migrants who were stopped at the border and then trying to help one another. And then they sort of splintered off in these multiple um, kitchen school organizations. They are doing all kinds of different things. Uh, is it important that these things be growing? How does one gauge whether a mutual aid society is in, in, good, uh, in good health? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that uh, every mutual aid experiment is going to have its own character and its own flavor and its own needs. So the question of scale is one that I think is completely context dependent. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was this like huge outpouring of people using mutual aid as a term through their social justice practices to respond to the pandemic. Some had existed long before the pandemic ever began and still exist now. One tendency that I saw, though, was, you know, um, insert name of town, mutual aid would pop up and everybody would flock to that one organization. And I think that that sort of thinking of like the big organization, the big flag, the big banner or the big tent, you know, sort of organizing, I think also really shoots us in the foot. If we're looking for one organization to sort of, you know, lead the mutual aid efforts of an entire community, um, I think that we're, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. I think that having more of a confederation style of thinking, of having multiple iterations of many different projects that are happening, that can work together and can come together under one banner in times of need. 
I think is a lot more resilient and a lot more effective than having single organizations being formed that scale up to a level that requires bureaucratic administration, membership, and things like this that are like, not to say that membership is bad in all cases, but you know, once you get to a level of scale where you're thinking about complex systems, do we have people on payroll and all of this kind of thing, you know, I think this is when you know things begin to become really complicated. So I think having small, tight-knit groups of people that are experimenting informally with each other and building cultures of mutual aid, I think alleviates the situation in which we feel like we need to have large organizations that can push a lot of weight and resources and effectiveness out into the community from above to the below. That was Peyton McDonald and also Darts and Letters producer Mark Epilonio. McDonald is co-directing a four-part documentary series called The Elements of Mutual Aid, Experiments Towards Liberation. You might have noticed that we've been producing a series of episodes on radical politics today. We've teamed up with professors Max Haven and Alex Kasnabish on the series. I wanted to speak with both of them to wrap up this series. We had a wide-ranging conversation on the history of social movement theory, including how it understands the far right today. We're going to play that whole conversation soon on the New Books Network. But for this episode, I wanted to just play some highlights that are especially relevant to how we understand autonomous and horizontal social movements. They wrote an influential book called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. The book is really about social movement theory, and particularly how social movement scholars have often misunderstood social movements, especially movements that are more horizontal and autonomous in nature. Here's just one example. Think about how Occupy Wall Street was dismissed for not having any demands. For Max and Alex, this kind of criticism totally misses the point. It misunderstands what's core to these types of movements the radical imagination. But what is the radical imagination? We love this term. I think, you know, for many people, the imagination is highly individualized, kind of like the the terrain of the individual genius at work, the kind of like, you know, the muse behind all these like incredible innovations, creative explosions, all this kind of stuff. And while not denying the individual dimension to it, one thing that Max and I along with a host of other thinkers and activists who are who are working in this area uh, agree on is that it's it's actually not an individual capacity it's something that we do and we do together so the radical imagination is it's like a verb it's not like a coat you put on it's it's a an activity that that we engage in collectively when we imagine when we do that creative work of envisioning that which does not yet exist so like a ton of different scholars have different words for this process but i think for us well, what we were convinced by is that the imagination is often regarded in this really again highly stylized highly kind of like like it's like an aesthetic you know rather than something that's just 
mundane. It has to, it, it's always elevated because of its capture, I think, by capitalist ideology. But in fact, the imagination is something that's at work every single day in our lives. You know, it takes imagination to even make sense out of this society that we are a part of and to imagine your space within it to make yourself fit. And so that human capacity for uh, cooperation, creativity, problem solving and imaginative work is at the root of our existence as a species on this planet. So I think what we wanted to do too is to, to mine that and to explore that. So how do people mobilize that, right? Well, it's not just in these like super explicitly creative sites, like in a like art exhibit or in a movie or listening to some incre incredible boundary pushing album. But really, like in those everyday conversations we're having, where people sit down, come together to identify a problem, sketch out what might be a solution to it, and figure out how to mobilize resources uh, of all kinds to achieve that end. What is it about kind of the traditional social movement theory that makes it unsuited or not particularly good at uh, recognizing the kind of prefigurative politics that are happening that your book is so much about? That's, that's a great question. In part, my answer is very straightforward <laughs> uh, and a little dismissive. I would say, you know, look, when you ask a question like that, which is an excellent question, look at the subject position of the people telling the story. And for a long time, the people telling the story, and not to be totally reductive, but, you know, um, bourgeois, middle-class white men <laughs> in the academy who had absolutely no experience of or need to engage in struggle to defend their lives and dignity in society. Everything about their experience told them they lived in a meritocracy, told them they lived in a, a world that was properly ordered. They simply had no experience and no desire. And I mean, if, you know, like if people want to challenge this, I, I just... I dare you to 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 engage in the experiment of reading 1950s, early 1960s sociology and, and see what it says about about non-institutional politics. It's it's like a mirror held up to the people who um, who are evaluating the world. Right. And, and I say that not not to be dismissive about it. I say that with, you know, not saying that it, it didn't give us anything. Um, but that's a huge problem. Right. When when your story of the world and the way it is and how it changes is uh, crafted only by people whom that world at least doesn't chew up, if not serve directly, then, then you get a very partial and imperfect perspective on it, I think. Um, but it's also a question, you know, of the philosophical and, and, and scientific roots of our disciplines, really. It's a question of what we're trained to see. It's like, if you know, if I build you an instrument to detect a particular kind of, um, you know, element, and then you find it, but it's not designed to detect all those other things. Uh, and, and you say, well, they're absent. I didn't find them. You know, are they absent or are you just not capable of seeing what's at stake there? And so I think it's, it's a question of stories. If we look back over some of the best social movement histories, and here, like I use that term broadly, you know, just talking about people's histories. Um, you know, the work of Howard Zinn, obviously, being kind of quintessential here, but so many more, right? Sylvia Federici, Peter Leinbaum, Marcus Redeker, all kinds of interesting folks writing histories from below where 
<clears throat> they show us that if we if we simply don't accept the accounts that have been given to us by the ruling classes, history is being made every day by people who don't get their names recorded and who aren't elevated enough to count in those official uh, records. You know, it's like Graeber says about the history of the state. Um, you know, we learn to look for for tax records as if they're somehow evidence of civilization, when in fact it's simply us. Uh, reflecting, you know, our own realities backward in time, right? We look for monumental buildings, we look for tax records, we look for evidence of armies. It doesn't mean those things are civilization. It seem, it simply means those those hallmarks are things that we have come to associate with ways of being in the world that we recognize as socially ordered like we are. So what are we missing when we're not paying attention to all that other stuff that doesn't fall into those narrow molds? And really, that was the question that, that Max and I were trying to take up in the project, you you know, what, what are we missing? What, like, what can we do that's beyond these narrow definitions, these incredibly narrow definitions of success and failure, which in so many supposedly advanced liberal democracies around the world today is increasingly measured now simply in terms of the duration of the specific party personality or regime in power. So, um, so notions of success, I think we we're at a moment where people understand in their gut that there's something wrong with this, but because of the saturation of our media environments and constantly refocusing our attention on kind of the bells and whistles of this particular circus, um, we, we lose sight of what 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 is truly, I think, the most exciting thing about social movements, which is that while they're almost always constantly failing to achieve their promised objectives or that the sort of the, their aspirations, they are almost always succeeding in generating this traction for alternatives. You know, they're constantly building new kinds of ways of imagining the world within them and not just, you know, sitting around being like, oh, write a story about how you would live if, you know, you know, this world was entirely different. You had magical powers and et cetera, et cetera, but in much more mundane everyday ways, which are more important, you know, how could we relate to each other in a way that doesn't replicate police culture? Uh, how can we uh, build institutions that aren't simply bureaucratic nightmares and then don't reduce people to some narrow marker of their social identity? How could we really address issues of exploitation and violence within our communities in a way that doesn't just reproduce uh, the carceral state or make people disposable, but at the same time highlights the kind of interrelational aspect of, of violence and seeks to find a way past that? These are just like, you know, just examples, but every movement worth its salt has come up with some sort of like answer to questions like that, right? And maybe they've stumbled, maybe they've been imperfect, but radical social justice oriented movements for as long as they've been around have sort of been like that, you know, that North Star in some ways to other people. They've provided a point onto which we can latch and say we could get somewhere closer to a less exploitative, less, uh, less objectifying, less, um, oppressive world. We, this, none of this is perfect, but this is all the work of movements are constantly doing. And I think, you know, we, we talked about movements as laboratories of, um, of ways of living otherwise. And I really think it's one of the most important functions that radical movements serve. And one that's built on often like deep contradictions too, which is, I think, something that the typical social movement research and approach to social movements can't can't really contend with is the, the contradiction, which is that like 
to borrow a different language that we use in the book, but one that's very friendly, um, like if you if you come from a worldview where you think that the system that we live under is fine, then it's going to be very hard for you to understand the value of social movements, except to the extent that they make that system better. So you reinterpret all social movements in terms of how they either build or don't build this world that we live in. But social movements, as Alex points out, are laboratories for world building. They're laboratories for thinking about what the world could be like, but they're also laboratories where people are actively together building a different world. Um, and there's a real contradiction here because on the one hand, social movements, even if they're very, very pragmatic and they're just like fighting to get people safe injection sites or fighting against domestic violence or fighting against like for bread and butter issues, they're still always animated by a vision that the world could be different. Otherwise, why would you do it? You know, you have to believe on some level that the world can be different, whether you admit it or not. And plenty of movements are very shy about talking about visions of a different world. They think it's hokey. They think it's silly. They think it will get them dismissed. But nonetheless, one of the things that I think we observed so clearly was that every movement is always doing this kind of world, projective world building at the same time as what our research also revealed is that every social movement is also a little incubator for a different world. And this, I think we mean very, very pragmatically. This is where people build friendships and relationships. So many of the people we met in the progress of that project, that's where they met their lovers, their partners, their friends. They had babies. They broke up. They had they built whole worlds within these movements. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about this kind of move, movements as spaces of world building and contradictory world building, I think makes clearer what's at stake. And it's not to say that those things, you know, and it is a real contradiction. Often there is a lot of tension between fighting for a different world and creating another world in the now. And sometimes those things are can't be reconciled. Sometimes that leads to horrible heartbreak and horrible, uh, uh, you know, destruction of social movements. And yet, if we just deny that those things exist, as most social movement research does in a certain way, uh, we're missing the most interesting part of the picture and the part of the picture that we as social movement organizers also need to learn from, because the, if we can see that clearly, then at least we can try and strategize a bit around it. So I have a slightly unfair question. In one of the chapters of your book, you give a kind of whirlwind tour of social movement organizing in the 20th century. And you say that in broad strokes, you, you characterize essentially like four waves of social movements in North America in particular, from like a more radical sort of grassroots approach to a more state-focused industrial kind of labor relations approach to a kind of new left version that was more about a broader social revolution to the kind of more direct action, mutual aid, prefigurative politics of the kind of um, global justice movement. Um, and the book ends there, or I mean the, the history ends there. And I'm wondering if you were to write that that chapter today, where do you think broadly we're, we're at with the scope of kind of left social movements? I wish, I wish we knew. <laughs> uh, I can answer maybe a little bit from my side. I think there's two, I, I, I am of two minds on this question. So on the one hand, I think it's always tempting, especially as a, sort of a, a social scientist or someone thinking about society to imagine that there's been a break. And I think we can't deny that in the wake of the Occupy movement, which appeared to many people to kind of fumble the ball on the financial crisis of 2008, there has been a big swing uh, among a subsequent generation of activists towards more 
state-based projects in certain circumstances. So I think following that, for instance, you saw a lot of people in Europe, if we're, if we're just speaking about the global north, a lot of people in Europe invest a huge amount of energy in new left-wing political parties, especially in Southern Europe. In North America, you saw you know, a big investment in Bernie Sanders. In the UK, you saw a big investment in Jeremy Corbyn. And so it can appear to a certain extent that that is a, the pendulum swinging back away from a kind of project of autonomy and towards a project of state-driven radical change. I think that interpretation is suspicious because ultimately I don't think that pendulum swings the way we think it swings exactly. And also to accept that pendulum would also be to bracket out all of the other movements that have been happening that have been actually extremely consequential, whether it's the movement for Black Lives or Indigenous uprisings and blockades or the movement of direct action solidarity with migrants, or the abolitionist, prison abolitionist movements, or the ways in which feminist movements have set their sights well beyond just different policies. Uh, all of these things have been going on at the same time. So I think this leads me to why I'm I, I'm dissatisfied with the explanation that the pendulum has swung, because I think we do see that, in fact, movements for autonomy are vibrant and uh, vibrating uh, at a very high pitch right now. And so I think this is my second answer to this question in a certain way, which is I think in hindsight, we might remember the period from even, let's say, the late 1980s up to the present as a single moment. And in hindsight, we might see that moment not like we can, of course, try and tell a story that's about a pendulum swinging from autonomy to state based solutions and back and forth and back and forth. But I think historically, we'll probably look on back on this moment and see that there there was emerging in this moment something that, for instance, Rodrigo Nunes speaks about as diagonalism, which is a sense that it's neither horizontal nor vertical. It's not just the verticalness of trying to get your people elected to change policies, but it's also not entirely the horizontalism. But I think that diagonalism is not easy, and we don't have a huge number of precedents for it. And we're living in a world that is changing incredibly quickly, and also a world where you know, capitalism produces intergenerational strife in a way that's unlike almost any other system. So mm -hmm. we've actually got generations who feel the need for often quite good reasons to define themselves against what came before. So, you know, my students have like no memory of the ultra globalization movement to them. That's ancient history. They almost have no memory of the Occupy movements. And they feel in order to have dignity in their struggles now, they need to create a retrospective um, story about why those movements failed so that they can say, oh, this time it'll be different. And mm -hmm. God love them. I mean, we all do that as young people. Yeah. But I want to say that that's a symptom of the system we live under. Like there's something about capitalism and its drive for constant innovation and newness that produces mm. that desire for schism. And unfortunately, we inherit that desire and we bring it to our social movements. And so it makes seeing the continuity and also the contradiction and complexity very difficult because we're obsessed with, in some ways, making these differences and distinctions. That was Max Haven and Alex Kastnabish. 
Their book is called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. Remember to check out the full interview on the New Books Network. We talk much more about the history of social movement theory and how it understands or misunderstands autonomous movements. We also talk about the idea of the radical imagination and how much of right-wing politics today seems to actually have its own sort of radical imagination. That will be on the New Books Network soon, and when it's up there, I'll add it to these show notes. And that's it for this episode of Darts and Letters. We are a production of Cited Media, and we were produced on this episode by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and me, Gordon Caddock. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddock. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of a mini-series that we developed looking at the radical imagination. The scholarly leads are Professors Alex Kasnabish at Mount St. Vincent University and Max Haven at Lakehead University. They provided research support and general consulting to the development of this series. Thanks for listening. Check back in sometime in 2024. Take care.